AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for February 23rd, 2016. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today we're joined by John Hogboom. Welcome, John. Thank you. It's good to see you here again. Yes. You got the privilege of hosting last week. I did. And Matt Kaiser. Welcome, Matt. How's it going, Good Brian? to see you here again as well. Good and it's good to be back. Myself, I'm Brian Rexrode, and we'll jump right into it. And uh, well, I guess the big bug, this could be the big bug of the year, right? Well, or maybe not. So, John, if you'd yeah, like I to... Think we'll have some discussion <laughs> on how big we think this is. So. Uh, bug was uh, discovered in glibc. Right. So glibc is kind of, um, it's the library that has some functionality for uh, looking up domain names to IP addresses and vice versa, uh, like the get addr info call, which is a specific call in glibc mm -hmm. that they're referencing a bug in. Some researchers at Google discovered they were doing some stuff with SSH and they discovered that they were getting a segmentation fault. And they're like, well, that's not good. That means there must be something you know, possibly exploitable here. And they, after they ferreted it all the way through, they discovered it was in glibc, and they wrote uh, a proof of concept. And it's, I don't, I'm not gonna get, I'm not gonna say I'm an expert on this vulnerability. I did mm -hmm. look at their proof of concept code, but it is a buffer overflow. And it looks like it's in the DNS response that comes back, and they have kind of a client server, uh, two sets of scripts, one, one to test this out, so you can actually exploit, uh, or at least prove out that this, this works. Mm -hmm. They also discovered that independently, the glibc authors uh, have been looking at this since July, um, and the guys at Red Hat have been looking at this bug as well. You know, I guess it's in their system, they're looking to try and figure out how to fix it. It's also mm -hmm. been around the bug since 2008, it's just that nobody was really kind of aware that this is a, uh, a path of right. uh, vulnerability. You know, what, what could happen potentially here is if you are able to exploit this, uh, let's say I'm a client machine, I Linux, it's going to be a Linux type environment or Unix because I don't think Windows would be impacted by this glibc vulnerability. And I use glibc in some program to you know, do this DNS resolution. Um, so maybe like an SSH client or a web server client where it needs to look up that domain name and resolve it to an IP address so that it can contact it. Um, those are possible avenues of exploitation there. Right. The trick here, in my opinion, is that it is a DNS type of vulnerability where I'm trying to do a buffer overflow with a DNS response. And most people are gonna be somewhat insulated through a chain of cache resolvers or other bind resolvers before they you know, get to the actual authoritative server that's gonna to try to push a weaponized response to me or whatever, mm -hmm. I don't know if weaponized is the right term there, but a buffer overflow response to me. And that would have to come from the authoritative server for that domain name. Uh, unless a caching resolver could carry it through to you, which cool. I don't know that anybody's proved that that's possible yet. Right. Upside is, I think for the most part, the infrastructure of the internet will probably insulate most people from this vector of attack. That's not to say you couldn't in right. very like controlled circumstances. If I'm in like a a Wi-Fi hotspot cafe or something, yeah. and I can start, you know, t pretending I'm the DNS server for everything or something to all the 
people there, I could probably potentially exploit it. Right. But how many people are roaming around with Linux so in a Wi-Fi hotspot? You know. Anyway, go ahead. The proof of concept code that they posted, it looks like they provided both the client and the server. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm used to seeing proof of concept code that works against a particular piece of software, and I it's so it's a vulnerable server, and I provide the attacking client or vice mm -hmm. versa. Having both sides kind of makes it a toy problem. I'd like to see someone come up with real proof of concept code against existing software, because people were saying this thing affects Bitcoin, this thing affects SSH, there's all sorts of, at this point I haven't seen anything concrete. Mm -hmm. No offense, Matt, but I'd like to see it get patched. I'd like that too. <laughs> <laughs> we, well. so, but to your point, I agree. It, this is a case where not only do you need to be able to exploit the vulnerability, and the circumstances around actually being able to exploit it are not, not fully understood at this point, right? And the other aspect is that you'd have to gain control of the server in some respect, either through an authoritative record, which might get filtered out by cache resol caching resolvers, or it actually gain control of the caching resolver, or to do something like DNS changer, where you're pointing somebody to right. a rogue DNS a rogue server. DNS server right. And I think what you're alluding to, John, is if in a local an untrusted LAN environment, somebody could beat the race to answer a DNS response with right. a, uh, you know, a falsified response or something along those lines, which wouldn't be all that easy, but could be done. Right. So it, there are circumstances where perhaps you could behave like a, a, a rogue server mm -hmm. in combination with performing the exploit, but I, I guess I would kind of, if you can be a rogue DNS resolver, you can also point somebody to a whole plethora of right. other There's sorts of, of other exploits and drive-by type things. So the question becomes, is this the most lucrative, the most effective, the most efficient avenue for somebody to actually do the exploit? Will they bother putting together an exploit if you still have to control the DNS infrastructure to do it? So we'd like to get it patched. It's uh, it's uh, hopefully it'll get uh, get taken care of very soon. Is there a patch available yet, or are they still working on it? That's a good question. I can't remember if there is or not. Yeah, um, I haven't seen uh, I haven't seen information about patches like at this point. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I know that they were all once they discovered it, the Google researchers, the Red Hat guys, and the Glibsa guys were all kind of you know sharing notes so they could mm -hmm. you know work a, a solution to this effectively. So I think you're probably right that there is a patch available at this point. Yeah. All right, so going forward, hopefully the patches will get deployed quickly. Uh, it's obviously going to take a while if everybody's got to patch all their Linux platforms to be able to uh, correct this. So uh, be on the lookout for things that might concern you there. Uh, the next story I thought I'd bring up here is actually related to uh, something that was pretty broadly in the news. It was related to ransomware. Uh, there was a particular hospital out in California, and the particular hospital is not important here. But uh, they paid a ransom. They, you know, I think originally the news came out it was going to be like three and a half million dollars in ransom yeah, or something like that. I don't know where that ridiculous. Yeah, number. I don't yeah. know where that number came from. In this particular case, they actually paid apparently seventeen thousand dollars in ransom. They apparently did this before contacting law enforcement for any assistance, but did apparently uh, uh, subsequently contact law enforcement uh, about this issue. I guess you know, uh, my personal opinion. I think most of us pretty much agree. Avoid paying the ransom at all costs. You you really are playing roulette in a sense. It really feeds this industry if you do pay the ransom. But on top of that, uh, it may not even help you to recover your data. 
it's much, much better to protect yourself ahead of time. And uh, that includes, you know, keeping your, uh, running antivirus, keeping it current, use network controls, you know, uh, intrusion protection systems, port restrictions, that is don't allow outbound connections on your network that aren't necessary, proxy web connections, and use the categorization associated with most proxy services to be able to uh, block access to unrecognized sites or uh, uh, categorize malicious sites. Um, you know, basically monitor for, for malicious callback. That is anything that might be associated with an infection that may have been able to establish a footprint inside your enterprise. You know, look for the indications that it might be uh, trying to call back. And back up your data. Special note for backing up data. Uh, you know, this is, that is if you end up in a situation where you have ransomware, you're able to restore that data. Most backup solutions today do not really account for ransomware. That is the notion of, you know, encrypting your data. What will tend to happen is if the file name stays the same, it'll encrypt that, you know, it'll back up your, right. <laughs> your encrypted form of the file. This is a new version of your Oh, this is a new version. We'll just save that. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Oh, wow. So, um, and this is something that uh, what I would actually encourage is if you have a vendor that you're working with for backup, you know, talk with them. Tell them that this is your concern and that you're going to be looking for vendors that support protection from uh, malicious, uh, you know, data uh, integrity corruption. <laughs> so anyway, uh, and if you get, do get detected, uh, if you do detect in a case, you know, disconnect from the network uh, and clean or re-image the system before reconnecting. That is, uh, in some cases at least, the decryption cannot continue if it isn't able to get keys to be able to do that encryption. So the, uh, if it loses its callback capability, it could at least disrupt the, uh, the process of doing that encryption. Uh, determine the source of the malware so that you can you know, basically control that, whether it came in through an email perhaps, or uh, perhaps was spread through a, an infected USB drive. And of course, be careful about USB drives. Some of these spread through USB drives, right? And then uh, last but not least, be cautious of your backup data. That is, the backup data itself could actually have um, you know, uh, in, infected files associated with it. So you're going to want to be careful about doing your, your uh, restore and make sure that you're only restoring files they absolutely need. So any other thoughts on this? Yeah, I was thinking of the things you're talking about here, besides antivirus and backing up your data, they seem to be enterprise solutions. I'm, whenever I think of ransomware, I think of, you know, somebody's grandmother clicking on the wrong link and ending up That's with true. it. So what would we say for folks that uh, don't have access to or wouldn't understand how to set up you know, an IDS on their home network or look for outbound connections? Well, I, th I think that's a situation where you're going to be relying on your antivirus and your data backup mm -hmm. and uh, keeping an offline backup. You know, even if it's a month old for most residential folks, it's probably not going to be that big a deal. In fact, it's probably a little better to have longer periods between your backup intervals to protect against a ransomware type thing because uh, I'm not aware of any particular cases where they'll sit, sit dormant for a long time and then, you know, before posting the sort of the ransom message. But um, did you have any other? No, I, I uh, think you got all the ones I was going to bring up. <laughs> well, so. the one thing I was going to say is oh, having a backup. Be what you click on. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> you know, try to get, not to get infected in the first place. Right. Well, of course. <laughs> um, from an enterprise perspective, having a good backup strategy is important, but I think it's also important to have, you know, maybe some kind of yearly or quarterly, if you can do it, exercise to say, well, let's simulate an mm -hmm. event here where we have to recover 100 machines that mm -hmm. have ransomware on it because they're totally trashed at this point, mm -hmm. just so that your incident response teams will 
kind of have a process and be able to get back everybody back into business as quickly as possible. Because mm -hmm. if you don't test the process, you might find out that, hey, my, our data is no good. We've been, we thought we were backing up all this time, mm -hmm. but we really haven't been. Yeah, even without uh, malicious intent, I, there are a lot of situations where folks believe they're backing up data, and then when they go try, trying to restore it, find that the res restoration process doesn't work properly. Right. And so you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, any process that you haven't tested is not one that you can rely upon when you really need it. Right. So uh, anyway, don't pay the ransom. That's the f uh, sort of the, uh, the basic story here. Now, we talk a lot about IoT, Matt, mm -hmm. and uh, I think this falls into the category of a couple of IoT fails. Never heard of and, any kind of IoT fails. Well, Brian. you know, I think this. <laughs> there are a lot of fails things on the internet, but you know, I think uh, some mistakes are being made. Perhaps uh, these devices just really need a little. I'm saying perhaps that's a really suggestion. They absolutely. They, a lot of the device manufacturers really need to get a uh, handle on the security thing. So tell us about these couple of examples. Sure. So we have two for this week. Uh, Pentest Partners has a really interesting write-up about a DVR box they picked up, very cheap. They just wanted to say, you know, let's see how bad these things really are. And I like the way that it was written up, and I was talking to you earlier, John, about yeah. the way it's like they're saying, well, you know, we, we wondered if maybe we could get the, the password. And it turns out they're using admin and blank for the password. Not blank. the word blank, a blank. No and, password. And no password. <laughs> I don't even think that showed up in the top passwords or whatever. I don't, like, yeah, I don't know Jim if we did record that as an option, like a no password. <laughs> no password. But oh, yeah. I, I don't think it showed up in the top, so maybe that's a really good password. It's, <laughs> no one's it's looking for it. strangely not complex. <laughs> Nobody thinks anybody's that dumb. <laughs> no password not. whatsoever. Uh, okay. So but then anyway. it's like, you know, then they find a web auth bypass, and they're like, well, that's nice, but maybe I want a shell on the box. And they found a web shell, and they're like, well, maybe it wants you know, some sort of remote shell instead. They mm -hmm. found that. And they mm -hmm. found things like unauthenticated telnet. There's a whole list in the article. Mm. Um, the really interesting thing that they found is that apparently uh, the, the box will send screenshots of the first camera that's attached, because these are controllers for multiple cameras. It'll send screenshots to this email address, lawishere at yeah.net. Mm. Um, with no explanation, never tells the user this is going to happen. It just starts sending screenshots. Mm. So whether this is some sort of debug code that was never taken out, whether this is some sort of insidious code that's there to spy on users of the DVRs, it's not really clear. Somebody found like a code repo that belonged to this person and said, so what are you doing here? And it was then taken offline quietly. Mm. So more questions than answers on this one at this point. But right. you know, maybe it's, it's not always true that these are just bugs that someone careless put in. It's possible someone's putting things in that are not in the owner's best interest. Mm -hmm. So that was an interesting read. The other one that I saw this week, uh, risk-based security put out a document on these DVRs from a company called Raysharp. And apparently Raysharp DVRs all use the same password and it's hard-coded and the user is root and the password is 519070. And oh, you can't change that. And there was, there's some interesting read on, in their paper where they link to and they say, well, there's, here's an Amazon post from like 2012 some guy complaining about it, and he heard back from their corporate, and they said, well, if you ever lose your password, just change your password by using this password. <laughs> I'll let you think about that. <laughs> um, and then apparently there was an even earlier one in 2010 on some other uh, uh, closed-circuit TV forum where someone else had found the same bug. And apparently this has been around for a long time. Uh, Pentest, not sorry, um, risk-based security had found mm -hmm. in Shodan at least 36,000 Somewhere up until about 45,000 of these devices are exposed directly to the internet with a web interface. So it's kind of a problem. Yeah. Um, and I feel like now that this is out, this is probably going to be added to the list of popular usernames and passwords for exploiting boxes for IoT botnets. Yeah. 
Okay, well, this is the same, and I, I have to admit, I, while you were saying that, I was getting a little bit of heartburn, and so that's settled a little bit now. But, so, but nevertheless, I, I'm not even sure what to say. I mean, these are a couple of, uh, I think, like There's so many examples. different devices like this that we come across all the time mm -hmm. that have these back doors put in them. Back and they're these consumer-type, uh, you know, embedded here. devices. I don't understand who's putting these things together and, like, what kind of source code control, like, these companies have before mm -hmm. they decide, yeah, this is good. Let's deploy this on all of our devices and send it to our customers. I, I'm no. with you. I've been scratching my head on this. I used to have a full head of hair. <laughs> so. Okay, so <laughs> let's move on. Okay, John, so um, I, I guess this is just uh, actually another, but this is a, a little bit of a different situation. It's not IoT. It's actually security software. Right. Another example. Yeah, another of example of what were they thinking here? And, and before kind of we go on here, forgive me for the for for digressing here, but for these IoT things, I, I mean, quite frankly, I don't really know of a way to protect yourself against these types of things other than that when you go shopping for a device, dig around a little bit. Look for terms like backdoor vulnerabilities for your, these brands of devices and try to find ones that, you know, don't have a lot out you know, there. there. Stick a no, firewall in front of them. No, no. <laughs> Here's the idea for the app. You know, this is our mo new mobile app and people are watching. If someone implements this, just let me know and just give me a credit. And it. <laughs> take, the, take the box, scan the barcode, look it up in a database, take the device number, look it up in, I don't know, US search database or mm -hmm. the um, MITRE CVE list, and just give me a list of the things that I need to worry about, and then if it's been patched or not. And if I can patch it, I can do that. But if most, you know, it, it so should it, the, it, the My Credible Device app. I think we can find something catchier, and I'll work with marketing on that one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I'll give you. <laughs> All right, so I expect a prototype by next week. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> All right, John, back to you. So this is uh, the security software thing. Uh, right. So uh, Komodo, who is an antivirus security vendor, they have some software that can run on your endpoint Windows machine. They actually, uh, in their Komodo Internet Security Suite, um, they have a module called Geek Buddy that runs, mm -hmm. and what that actually is, and I haven't actually heard a good explanation of why they have this functionality in there, but it's actually a VNC server. And if you're not familiar with VNC, it's a lot like Remote Desktop Protocol. Um, mm -hmm. It allows someone to connect to a port on your computer and then see your desktop and interact with it if they needed to. Now, would this be using port 5900? Do we know if it's I don't on know port? if we know exactly which port it was running on, but it was definitely running on the machine, and it was configured without a password. So if you did have a VNC client software and you knew what port to connect to, you just, boom, you'd be right into the mm. machine. And if that machine was connected to the internet, it would potentially be exposed to all of the internet to find it as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm not quite sure on the port if it was the normal 5900 or not. Okay. The other interesting aspect of it is even though you're running, you know, like the Komodo software tries to sandbox a lot of applications, not the VNC server part, but sandbox your internet browser or other things that are running to help protect your system from getting infected. But if some code was running on your browser inside a sandbox, it's not stopping it from connecting back into the VNC server and now having full control mm. of your machine, if it was smart enough to know how to yeah, do that. Yeah, it was there. You know what I mean? Right. Um, so it's really, an, um, it's an interesting vulnerability. Why right. it's there, I'm not quite sure, as so, part of their suite. So but. your point being that even if you're inside a protected network and the inbound port to the VNC server is blocked, 
if you browse to a site that's under their control, the this browser scripting could loop back. Is that what? Yes. It, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. So, so you could have like, a, you know, they have a VNC so client that'll run in your... Protection. Yes, it, it can still connect to ports on wherever. So it could connect mm -hmm. to like the local host on that, you know, the VNC port and connect to it and do interact with it if it needed mm -hmm. to, and then push that back out to somebody else. So interesting bug, uh, Komodo responded by adding a password Mm -hmm. uh, to it. However, the password that they used was computed from a couple of elements on the machine, like the hard disk properties and the serial number of the machine or something. Something that could be, an attacker could probably get access to as well and say, oh, I can figure out what the password is, and they'd be able to get in as well. And then since then, Komodo has released another update that says they address the vulnerability, um, but they don't specify how it was actually addressed. So just an interesting, like, why? Mm -hmm. You know, I don't understand. Like, what? Uh, first of all, why is that there? I can't. I'm thinking in my head from a security vulnerability. What am I? Wh why would I need a VNC server as part of my security suite? So, with a name like Geek Buddy, to me, that sounds like some sort of support. Like, you know, if some version of Windows have the ability, if you want to have somebody remote control your computer, like, you know, if if you need help with it, right. someone else will pop in and take a look at what's going on. It might be designed for that. Mm -hmm. Could be with a name like Geek Buddy. Yeah. But, hey, how about putting that put was some, kind of my put a password on, on it? Yeah. Let yeah. the user decide. There's, there's what the right ways to do that. Be. Yeah. yeah. You know? I, I think this is one of these situations where generally the folks that are going to need support aren't going to really be in a position to do good security practices. And so it, it really is a balance. I think, I mean, I, I'm trying to just play de devil's advocate here or, let, or, or defend them <laughs> in some respect, is that, you know, there there is a difficult balance between ease of use or being able to support customers and really doing security right. And we're always kind of walking that balance. I think collectively as a community, kind of walking that balance. And, um, you know, to really, really do it right takes a lot of cost, you know, a lot of uh, investment, a lot of tricks and tools, and it can break more easily. And there may be other kinds of bugs that get introduced into it. So I think it's, a, I think it's always a balance here. Now, I, I personally, I, I tend to agree that having no password is really not an excusable type situation, but you know what they could do. There's no perfect. I'm I'm just thinking about this. There are certain systems that if you want to, it's like pairing your phone to like a, I'll use the Chromecast for example. It'll show you something up on the screen. You mm -hmm. got to type right. that in, and between the two of them, they figure it out. If you're on the phone with somebody and they, you know, they say, "Well, can you connect to my computer and tell me what's going on?" If you read the password over the phone to the client. I mean, there's a way to do that. It's just, mm -hmm. just a yeah. suggestion. Yeah, there, there are ways that this could be done. And it, it's, without it's a matter pain. without, without too, too much, too much pain, pain. Right. right. And it, again, it becomes a balance between those. In fact, I, I, my suspicion is that's the reason some, the reason some of these back doors are in place is that, you know, the mindset of the uh, developers was nobody's going to ever figure this out. And if we have to go in and fix something because there's some catastrophic problem, turns out the back door is the catastrophic problem. But if we have to go in and fix these, we'll have a way to be able to do it. And it turns out to kind of backfire in itself in time. And it's just a matter of time. So nevertheless, uh, I, I'm, I've been searching for, like I said, I started this job with full head of hair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, Matt, so let's go to you. And uh, I guess um, here we have, it, this sounds like it's more of an accident where 
Uh-oh. <laughs> well, depends on whose side they're on. This may have so, been an accident in, in somebody on the defensive side, but it's certainly right. not an accident in what happened next. Right, right. So right. what happened here yeah, is, oh, yeah, absolutely. is the Linux Mint, which is a, a variant of Ubuntu, which is a variant of Debian. All these are different related distros, but Linux Mint is actually one that I had been using. Mm -hmm. um, apparently, over the weekend, their blog got hacked, and they're running WordPress, and WordPress does have a bit of a reputation for having some either, you know... We, it's hard to keep it up to date. It's a little bit of work. Yeah. If you're not updating it yourself, it's a little bit of work. Uh, if you are updating itself, some places will do it automatically for you, but it seems there was mm -hmm. some flaw. It's not mm -hmm. really clear at this point what the flaw was, but it allowed the attackers to make modifications to the web page, and they pointed the download link to uh, Linux Mint 17.3 Cinnamon version to an FTP server in Bulgaria. Which also served. Fine. Oh, it's fine <laughs> because it also served up uh, the download ISO. Except it wasn't the real download ISO. It was modified to automatically run a DDoS bot known as Tsunami or Kaiten. Mm -hmm. um, so the interesting thing here is that it's it's a pretty impressive hack, you know, to get people who are downloading it to download this software and be none the wiser, unless and some people still do do this they were comparing the MD5 hash that was provided on the site and saying, wait a second, mm -hmm. this isn't the right file. But some people don't do that. Well, right. Most people don't do that. Some people are, are very particular about that sort of thing. So they, they managed to, they thought they'd fix that, mm -hmm. and then the site got popped again. So it popped mm -hmm. twice. They've taken down, they took down linuxmint.com. I'm not sure if it's up right now, but it was at least taken down for a time period to figure out what happened. Uh, and the database for the website, for the, the PHPBB forum, was sold on the darknet mm. for eighty dollars in Bitcoin. Eighty dollars. Eighty dollars. So to me, you've got a combination of an eighty dollar sale of so it's probably some pretty good information, and a DDoS spot being put in. Of all the things you could have done if you were going to compromise an operating system, you put in a DDoS spot that uses IRC for command and control, yeah. like you know two thousand and one mm -hmm. style malware. I mean, it's it still works. Uh, people people were basically <laughs> saying they, they could have done a whole lot worse with this, and yeah. for whatever reason, they chose not to, or didn't know how to do. Or that. didn't know how to right. do it. it, it yeah. really so that I mean, and I think there's there's perhaps something to that that somebody is that perhaps is capable of, and this doesn't I'm, I'm, you don't have to necessarily be an expert here, but somebody that has grasped the process of exploiting a, you know, vulnerability in WordPress and manipulating the site and, you know, putting it and then modifying the distribution isn't necessarily somebody that's an expert in command and control associated with mm -hmm. botnet. So they're really taking a number of different pieces and parts here, putting them together with enough, enough technical competence. If it were an organized or, you know, group with a lot of experts in different areas, it would perhaps be a different story. And that's... Uh, that's perhaps a good idea, good well, thing. And yeah, I, I keep thinking yeah. of when WordPress blogs get attacked. It's usually someone who's posting in the banner, hacked by team name here, right. here's the flag, here's all of our members, greets to these guys, disses mm -hmm. to these guys, sort of stuff. Right. So. Okay. Well, uh, hopefully they, they can get that drive-by exploits. Or they yeah. do that, yeah. or redirects for other drive-by right. exploits. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully they get that uh, straightened out pretty quickly and uh, get. There's uh, distributions. Now, I guess the question becomes how many of those, how many folks have downloaded that? And it's a good question. Is there a way to, to let them know <laughs> or get, to get it updated? Well, the assumption, I guess, is if you download the ISO within that time frame, and it was only about one day, 
um, chances are it's no good. Mm -hmm. um, and they have given you, they, they basically, I, I don't know if they've contacted people, but they've made it very clear on the site, by the mm -hmm. way, this is a time period in which if you downloaded it, you should just delete it and get the new version. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, if you got it last weekend, delete it and get the new version. Okay, so looking at the uh, internet weather for the last week or so here, first of all, what we show up in our analysis is scan probes on port 1234 TCP. Uh, it actually turns out when we look at this a little more closely, you can see the activity on the graph, it's pretty obvious there. Uh, this is apparently backscatter from a denial service attack or perhaps a series of denial ser service attacks that are taking place. You know, I, I looked at it in a number of different points and it looked like the target was pretty consistent. There were a couple of places where there were other targets involved here, uh, but they looked like may they may have even been related targets. But in this particular case, or the uh, at least one of the points, the target was a cloud service provider in France or probably one of their clients in that cloud service provider. You know, all the uh, this is based on flow data here. So the the source ports were consistently 80 TCP, and they were consistently SYNAC flags. So we're basically seeing the backscatter from um, uh, denial service attack activity here, and uh, that with apparently is continuing. Uh, with, yes, with widely, uh, widely spoofed source IPs. Good point, John. So, uh, and that's why it basically the uh, backscatter, you know, sprays widely across the internet. Uh, and you may see that, in fact, and. Uh, and be able to recognize it. Next one is scan probes on port 5353 UDP. And this is uh, basically a port that's assigned to multicast DNS. And uh, I'm not really in a good position to describe exactly how multicast DNS works here, but we're looking at the last 90 days of activity. I wanted to give it a sort of a bigger swath so you could see how this is, uh, this is trending. This actually, this protocol is apparently used or it's available in Apple OS 10 as well as on Linux. Theoretically, this protocol could be used kind of similar to, uh, you know, like a regular DNS for amplification, so in a reflective denial service attack. So we're seeing clearly reconnaissance activity, looking for uh, responders to this particular protocol, and you can see that that activity is increasing, which is generally an indicator that the, uh, you know, sort of the test probes that the the folks that are doing these reconnaissance have found that you know it's producing some results and so they're ramping up their activity to find more so it my guess is that they are finding responders on this port and uh, but we are not seeing up at this point any significant response activity associated with this at, uh, at least not in this port so it doesn't look like it's being actively used in reflective denial service attacks but this will be something to uh, perhaps keep a lookout for to see if this develops into yet another of the reflective denial service attack vectors uh, there are other potentials here that is to be able to find dns servers you can potentially manipulate them in other ways so that would be uh, perhaps another motivation for this reconnaissance Looking at the top 10 most probe ports, well, there really aren't too many surprises here. In fact, I don't see any surprises. Top of the list, port 23 TCP. That's uh, basically a lot of uh, devices scanning for uh, Telnet and uh, doing password guessing activities. Followed by 53.4.13, that's a Netis router backdoor where you can basically just send a packet with uh, script information in it and it will try to execute those. Followed by 1900 UDP, this appears to be reconnaissance associated with uh, looking for SSDP servers. Uh, a lot of that activity is blocked now. And then followed by port 22 TCP, 443 TCP, 1911, which is basically researching and that was associated, and I keep forgetting, remind me again, this was building a building automation, it was a building automation tool. Tritium, so. Fox, 
I always forget the manufacturer. Niagara. Niagara, there we go. Followed by port 445 TCP, 80 TCP, 21 TCP. That again is, uh, I think, uh, predominantly research activity. That is, you know, what I would describe as reputable research organizations that are looking for uh, systems that are that are vulnerable. Now, unfortunately, sometimes that information gets made public, and so uh, it could be used by uh, nefarious actors equally as well as um, legitimate researchers or uh, organizations trying to protect themselves. Uh, looking at the uh, trend here in terms of scan probes on port 23 TCP, you can see that in the last week or so we're again in an upward trend in terms of the number of probes, uh, but certainly not up at the peak that we've seen. Now, just to put this into perspective, we're looking at hundreds of millions of probes per hour here. So there's a huge amount of probing activity on uh, just port 23 that is, uh, that is taking place. Uh, looking at scan probes on port 53413 in the trend here, well, it's relatively flat. We haven't seen much change in terms of the number of probes. Now, you'll see here there's a little bit of a dip that occurred, uh, it looks like around the 18th of February, and uh, I think we're going to see a corresponding dip in the number of sources that are doing the probing when we look at that chart a little bit later on here. So looking at the most sources doing the probing, at the top of the list, port 23 again, and then followed by 53, port 13. Now, if we were to just take a look at the combination of those two, port 23, 53, port 13, and I'm kind of uh, making a, which is perhaps a false assumption that the addresses that are doing that probing are unique between those two. They may not be entirely unique, but uh, look at that pie chart. It's uh, actually taking up around 60% of that pie chart. Both of those are attributable basically to uh, almost entirely to uh, security surveillance camera DVRs or home routers I and that type talking of thing. About in Perhaps story. we haven't identified specifically those brands, but, no, but yeah, those possibly that. I'm type sure of they're thing. they're on someone's radar. Right. To recruit into the botnet. <laughs> yeah, they're on the radar. And most of these others are related to. Well, we have port 445 on this list as well, but the rest ICMP and some uh, P2P type activity that's, uh, that's intermingled in there. So looking at port 23, well, relatively flat in terms of the number of sources that are doing the probing. But again, like before, the volume here is pretty big. We're up in the order of about 90,000 uh, sources on a given outer, hour. And then uh, when we look at this in aggregate through the, through the day, it's on the order of about three times that, about three to four times in the order of maybe uh, 250 to 300,000 sources that are doing that probing out activity. That, uh, and that's just from our purview of um, you know, AT&T's view of the, uh, of the internet. And looking at scan sources on, uh, on port 53, port 13 UDP, again, this back door, you can see here that there was a, uh, basically a dip in that activity around February 18th, perhaps loss of the command control for the botnet or some other strange behavior. It's not the first time we've seen that. One of the uh, things that you can kind of gain from this is that a significant portion of the activity appears to be under a common command and control. So it's not as if there are lots of different organizations that are uh, taking advantage of this. It appears to be a relatively small group, perhaps a handful. So that's our show for today. And we'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. You can find AT&T Threat Track on the AT&T Tech Channel. It's on YouTube as well as iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Security. So I'd like to thank you, John. Thank you, Matt. Sure. I'm Brian. And uh, we'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe. 
The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.